And this week, we are very delighted to welcome Rabbi Ronnie Tabak, who is the rabbi of New Stoke Newington Shul. Rabbi Ronnie was ordained at JTS and is a particular master of Jewish mysticism, Jewish mythology, with a focus on the Leviathan and other sea monsters, which I think is what Rabbi Ronnie will be exploring with us today as we venture through Vayahi, which brings our journey of Bereshit to a conclusion. Rabbi Ronnie, over to you. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Now, in 2010, on the American TV show 30 Rock Season 2, I can't confess to be a great fan of the show, but there was an episode called Jack Gets in the Game. And it featured a random seven-second cutaway gag to one of the main characters' past life of where they released a novelty Halloween song. And this song was entitled werewolf bar mitzvah and it featured the classic lyrics werewolf bar mitzvah spooky scary boys becoming men men becoming wolves and the joke of this as the writers would say is the putting together these two things that don't seem to belong together at all this kind of kitschy Halloween song in the spirit of the monster mash and and other kind of classic things and the idea of celebrating a bar mitzvah but this song found an audience and was released in its entirety with full lyrics. You can look it up online. It's kind of entertaining. But is the idea of a Jewish werewolf completely crazy? Is that just a joke? In fact, not at all. We have a long history of Jewish werewolves, and it all starts in this week's parasha, Parashat Vayachi. At the end of Jacob's life, he gathers his children around them, and he gives them blessings. Well, we might generously call them blessings. Some of them definitely seem like curses as he berates his children for their failings as he imagines them. But the last blessing he gives is to his youngest son, Benjamin. And he says, Binyamin ze'ev yitraf, baboke yochal ad, v'la'erev yichalek shalal. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, he consumes his foe and in the evening, he divides the spoil. Admittedly, this verse is usually understood metaphorically, that the idea that Benjamin is a ravenous wolf is understood to be something about Benjamin's strength and power. For example, Rashi understands it to be a reference about the strength of King Saul, who's part of the tribe of Benjamin later on. But when I was in rabbinical school, my teacher and dean, Rabbi Daniel Nevins, knowing that I'm a fan of all things monstrous, mythological and strange, brought to my attention a little known commentary by Rabbeinu Ephraim ben Shimshon, one of the Tosophists living in 12th and 13th century France. Rabbeinu Ephraim looks at these verses and he thinks this has got nothing. This is not a metaphor. This is, in fact, telling us something about who Benjamin was. He writes that Benjamin was a ravenous wolf who would occasionally maul people. And when the time came for him to turn into a wolf, as it says, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, if he was with his father, he could rely on a physician and in that merit would not turn into a wolf. Thus it says, and if he leaves his father, he will die. 
which is a reference to when the brothers want Benjamin to come back. Joseph is trying to persuade them that Joseph should come. And they say, well, no, if Benjamin leaves his father, he will die. What does that mean according to Rabbeinu Ephraim? That is to say, if he separates from his father, he will turn into a wolf and attack people on the way. And anyone who encounters him will kill him. Rabbeinu Ephraim does talk about this elsewhere as well. He talks about, in another part of his commentary, he says, there is a type of wolf called a loup, loup garou, which is a French word for werewolf. And he says it's a person that changes into a wolf. And when it changes into a wolf, his feet emerge from between his shoulders. I imagine that's in order to get four legs. The wolf's other legs kind of come out from between his shoulders. So too with Benjamin. And they quote from Deuteronomy where it says he dwells between the shoulders. It's normally understood to be a reference to the temple mount where God dwells between the mountains. Here understood to be the wolf's legs emerge from Benjamin's shoulders. And Rabbeinu Ephraim tells us the solution for dealing with this wolf is that when it enters a house and a person's frightened by it, they should take a firebrand and thrust it around so they won't be harmed. And that's what they used to do in the temple, throwing ashes by the altar. And we repeat that procedure to scare away werewolves. He says a werewolf is born with teeth and that Benjamin ate his mother when he was born. And that's why Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin, because Benjamin is born with his teeth and kind of consumes his mother on emerging into the world. So far, so strange. Where does he get these ideas from? Well, partly he gets them from the Hasidei Ashkenaz, a pietistic group living in Germany in 11th, 12th, 13th century, who were very interested in mythology and folklore. They connected it to their daily life and their living and their religious outlook. In particular, Elazar of Worms, known as the Rokeach, was into the idea of werewolves. And he talks about how they were created from the beginning of time. They can't turn human again unless they've eaten the blood of a man or woman. If you were to look in Sefer HaChassidim, a collection of the teachings of the Hasidei Ashkenaz, you find all kinds of stories of dealings with monsters. They're particularly interested in monsters that sometimes appear human. Werewolves is a primary example. The other one is vampires. They're very worried about both of these things. And they talk about women who become vampires. It's, it's always women becoming vampires and men becoming werewolves. I, I'm not sure why. Maybe we can reflect on that a little bit later. Vampires can't turn human again unless they drink blood. And the same is true of the werewolf, they tell us. That you can always tell a werewolf because their eyeballs don't change. So a human being who becomes a werewolf, their eyes will still remain the same as it was when they were human. And we discover that they always have a tail, even in their human form. So what do we do with all this stuff that appears in these Jewish texts in the 12th, 13th century? Well, first of all, it's worth knowing that it doesn't appear in isolation. In fact, the Christian world at the same time is also very engaged with the question of werewolves. Some historians refer to this as the Christian werewolf renaissance happening in the 12th century. And what's important, I think, is that for these rabbis, they know that there are monsters in the world. That's how they see the world. They really believe that there are vampires and werewolves and monsters, and that's their understanding of the world. And therefore, it's vitally important for them that their religious teachings reflect their beliefs in the world, that these things have to cohere. Because if scripture is true and it's divine and the world has monsters in it, both of those things need to make sense together. 
We need to find those monsters in scripture. We need to find the scripture in the monsters. It's actually quite similar to people who today want to understand Genesis in light of modern scientific principles, you know, who want to read the Big Bang into the creation story or evolution into the six days of creation. It's a similar desire to read your understanding of the world into our holy texts. But it seems to me we have to understand it in a deeper way. There's a very famous essay called Monster Theory, at least I should say, a famous essay in certain circles, Monster Culture, Seven Theses by Jeffrey Jerome Cohen, in which he talks about how we need to understand monsters as artifacts within a culture, that they represent the culture in which they have power. And we need to consider why did the Hasidei Ashkenaz, why did Rabbeinu Ephraim care so much about werewolves? There were other monsters they could have spoken about and didn't so much. Why werewolves, and by extension vampires? Why did it trouble them? I was reading a paper by Professor David Scheibitz, a professor of history in the United States, reflecting on this Christian Renaissance, the connection to these Jewish texts. And he stresses that these shape-changing creatures were very important in their minds. It was part of that culture reflecting on what it meant to be human. The border with the animal. Right, what is a werewolf? A werewolf is a human being some of the time, and an animal some of the time, and somewhere between some of the time. And so werewolves help us reflect on the border between the human and the animal, and they challenge that border. Professor Scheivitz writes, werewolves are invested with deep theological meaning and allowed the pietists to chart out a unique approach to human embodiment in which bodies can retain stability even as they utterly transform. Bodies retain stability even while they transform. The werewolf becomes a symbol of how human bodies can change, but nevertheless remain human. Even as they might embody animal traits, we nevertheless remain human. To tie this back to Vayechi, if we look through Parashat Vayechi, we find that actually Jacob's blessings to his children are full of animal imagery. I've been speaking about Benjamin being a, a ravenous wolf, but a bunch of his brothers get a similar treatment. Judah is described as a lion's whelp. Issachar is a strong-boned ass. Dan is a serpent by the road. Naphtali is a hind let loose. We learn a lot about ourselves and what it means to be human when we compare ourselves to the animal world. After all, human beings are animals. And when we look into the animal world, we see ourselves reflected back as in a distorted mirror. We see animals behaving socially and we imagine that they have similar human values or human emotions. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. We put on character traits onto our pets, onto animals we see on TV and nature documentaries. Werewolves reinforce and question that line. They reinforce the line by stating that the blend of human and animal is a monster. They make us question the line because things on that border exist. It makes us ask questions like, can a human become an animal? Is there any real difference between a human and an animal? Is it monstrous when we embody our animal instincts? And I wonder too if Jacob, reflecting on his children, that there's something there too, that children also can sometimes feel like a distorted mirror to ourselves. I have two daughters, very proud of them. They're very young. 
But when I look at them, I do see parts of myself reflected back at me. Parts I like, parts I don't like, parts of myself that I don't like. And I can see that they're in different configurations, they're embodied in different ways, that they are other than me. They are themselves, but they are also me. And I see myself reflected, and that in itself is challenging. I believe that the werewolves, and indeed monsters in general, perform that function for us. They challenge us to ask, where are the borders of ourselves? What's the border between the human, the monstrous, the animal? And how do we see our place in God's reality? Rabbi Ronnie, thank you so much for such a different reflection. I assure you that you have been the first to bring us werewolves. And certainly until you come back again, I'm sure that there won't be any further reflection on that. As we come to the end of the book of Bereshit, you made me think that perhaps the whole of the book is sandwiched. We have the Leviathan, obviously, in the opening chapter. And now we have this, Benjamin as the werewolf, and as you say, all these animalistic references that Jacob incorporates into his blessings. I wonder really whether you might refer to other episodes within Bereshit to make the sandwich fully complete with these monster allusions. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the sea monsters in the beginning in Genesis, that seems to me part of the Bible's desire to demythologize earlier myths that they've inherited, that the sea monsters are not rivals to God's power, but subservient to God's power. Like if you wanted me to come and talk about sea monsters at great length, I'm happy to come and do that on a future occasion. But they are part of God's domain. They're completely subservient. They're just another creature in God's creation. By contrast, I think when this was written, I don't think anyone intended it to be anything monstrous, actually. There's no werewolves lying behind it. And I don't think there are any werewolves in Jewish tradition really until we hit the 12th century. And I wonder if that's because the idea of the monstrous in the Bible are definite things that remain how they are. You get sea monsters and they're created at the dawn of time and maybe they're a challenge to God and maybe they're not and it depends where you're looking in the Bible. And you get giants and they used to exist in the distant past and now they're all dead. They've all been defeated. You don't get humans that change into monsters. That's what's unique about the werewolves and the vampires that kind of emerge in the 12th and 13th century. And in some ways, those are much more challenging because you can be a normal human being and then you can turn into a werewolf. Thinking back to that 30 Rock song I alluded to, boys becoming men, men becoming wolves. But human beings do actually change. And many people do think of werewolves as an allusion to puberty kindly sprouting hair and getting animal desires. And that maybe also reflects on Jacob's life. He's looking at his children who are now grown up. And there is something challenging about one's children becoming adults. And maybe that speaks to it as well. I don't know if that speaks to the bookend, though. The Christians do well because they've got the book of Revelation to end the Christian Bible, which does echo the sea monsters with the dragon. They have a quite nice allusion at the end. I don't think that the Hebrew Bible has quite as definite an ending in some ways. There was one other thing I perhaps wanted to pick up on, and that's the nature of change that you allude to with your reference of werewolves. 
this reference to some kind of a metamorphosis and change strikes me as important because so much of what we suddenly see today with findings of science and our lives almost being predetermined by our DNA and much resistance to any kind of understanding of change. Obviously, Judaism's a big challenge to that kind of narrative. And I wonder if you might reflect on that. It's interesting because if you look at the Hasidei Ashkenaz, they seem to think that werewolves are born werewolves. Like Benjamin is born with his teeth, and that's why Rachel dies. They refer to a child being born with teeth and a tail, and everyone's worried he's going to eventually eat people. And uh, a rabbi telling them, no, don't worry, take his fangs off, cut off his tail. He'll be like any other human being. So they imagine werewolves as being, we would say, kind of genetically werewolves, though they change within their lives. Later Jewish werewolves reflect more the way we think about it today, that people can be struck by becoming a werewolf. We probably can't get into it too much, but there's a great story in the Meisebuch, a 17th century collection, which is entitled The Rabbi Who Was Turned Into a Werewolf, in which a rabbi is cursed by a magic ring and becomes a wolf. Or there's a fascinating poem written in 1920 by a Yiddish poet, Levik, called The Wolf, in which a rabbi is the lone survivor of a pogrom and finds his body being twisted into that of a wolf. Uh, I'll put some references in the show notes. Hopefully we can have some notes afterwards in case people would like to look these things up. But the idea of change itself is quite a powerful Jewish notion, that human beings can become better is really potent. That's what Teshuvah is all about, that we can become better. And the fact that the Hasidei Ashkenaz imagine a person can be cured of being a werewolf, it doesn't have to be forever that change is possible, I think is quite powerful and important. Even if we're born with certain tendencies, it doesn't have to be that way. Rabbi Wani, thank you so much again for guiding us through in such an innovative and different way. And we do very much look forward to welcoming you back again. If you like this podcast, please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, find out all about the exciting content that we have for you at our mothership at jewishquest.org. We look forward to seeing you again next week.